Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, Chris Crane is back for a new episode with special guests Armani White and Sean Birdie, owners of Firehouse, a Boston-based cannabis dispensary set to open in 2024. Armani and Sean join us this week to build upon Chris's Forbes column, What's Killing Social Equity in Cannabis? Lack of Banking where they discuss their mirrored journeys as cannabis consumers turn advocates, as well as their advocacy work and the accompanying challenges. Armani and Sean also dive into their path to cannabis retail and raising capital and the impacts of the social equity fund and safe banking. Today's episode marks the second installment of a special series of The Green Rush that follows Chris's latest Forbes column. In these episodes, Chris will welcome a guest, typically someone who's quoted in the column, to further discuss and flesh out the narrative. If you're interested in learning more about Firehouse and the advocacy work that Armani and Sean are involved with, visit the links in our show notes. Also, be sure to follow Firehouse, Armani, and Sean on LinkedIn, Twitter, and other top social media platforms. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Armani White and Sean Birdie of Firehouse. So welcome to the Green Rush. Uh, I'm this week's host, Chris Crane, um, and this is the second edition of the Green Rush series that we've been doing, which are meant to be follow-ups, follow-ons of uh, my columns that I run uh, every month or so in Forbes. Um, this week, I ran a column called What's Killing Social Equity in Cannabis? Lack of Banking. Uh, this is one that was quite personal for me, um, and it's because I used the story of Sean Birdie and Armani White, the owners of the uh, proposed firehouse dispensary in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Boston, as effectively a case study for what's gone wrong with social equity programs and why the lack of access to banking and capital has been by far the biggest challenge that uh, these licensees have faced. Um, and in full disclosure, I've worked with Sean and Armani on this project uh, for, I think, six years or so now, uh, going back to the very beginning. Um, I've been a sort of informal uh, a, a volunteer advisor. Uh, I consider these guys to be personal friends um, and colleagues. And uh, so, you know, want to put that all out there so folks understand, you know, what I'm talking about, who we're talking about, uh, any biases that I may have as well, uh, just in the interest of full disclosure here. Um, but I, it really did strike me that what these guys have gone through really does embody all of these challenges that social equity licensees have faced and that, you know, states have done a pretty good job by and large of figuring out ways to get licenses in the hands of people and people from communities that have been disproportionately impacted by uh, cannabis prohibition. 
but haven't really figured out a way to ensure that they are set up for success, particularly uh, to get the funding necessary uh, in order to uh, in, in order to get operational and compete in the marketplace. Um, this has been quite a long journey. It's one that I think is finally, well, I don't want to say coming to an end because they actually got to, you know, they got to actually run the store now, but uh, the uh, the funding journey is, uh, is now coming to an end. And I'm just really excited to bring this story to folks. So with that, I want to welcome to the show my, my friends, my colleagues, Sean Birdie and Armani White. Thanks so much for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. We're happy to be here. Yeah, hey, Chris. Happy to be here as well. Absolutely. So, you know, let's. I, I want to let's let's start at the beginning. Um, I, I would love for you guys to tell us your stories a little bit. So, Armani, why don't we start with you? Um, tell us a little bit about a little bit about your background. Right, this is a podcast, so we'll, uh, we'll we'll keep it as condensed as possible. But um, tell us a little bit about your background and you know what got you into cannabis and also the the story of what qualifies you as a social equity or economic empowerment um licensee in Massachusetts yeah chris thanks again for uh, having us on and for all the support over the years um so armani white i've been um man i've been uh, <laughs> using cannabis probably longer than than uh, i want to admit but um i've been in the industry trying to get this shop open now for yeah, it's been about five years, but got involved in advocacy um, in the cannabis industry as someone who just cared to see this industry do something um, about the injustice of the war on drugs. Um, and so, you know, myself, I was born and raised here in Boston and grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, very much so impacted by um, criminalization and the war on drugs and um, made my way to college and unfortunately, as mentioned in the story, if those read, um, was arrested for possession of marijuana. And um, I, I'd always been someone that cared about injustice and uh, was working on issues of injustice. Um, but that personal experience really did fuel me to um, push more to, to, to ensure that when marijuana was legalized, that people impacted by the war on drugs um, had access to it. And so that's actually how Sean and I met. We met trying to support people who were trying to access the economic empowerment program um with the with the organization equitable opportunities now which we both still participate in and um so yeah that's a bit about me i'm a you know racial justice advocate and um really do care about seeing more small uh businesses more black and brown owned economic empowerment social equity owned businesses succeed and um, this conversation is a is a much needed one I appreciate that. And can you tell us? Because uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's an important part of the story, um, and 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 partly because just the way that it 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 demonstrates the differences in in, in the differences in the way that black and brown folks in particular uh, experience cannabis prohibition compared to most white folks in the country. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the specifics around your your cannabis arrest? Because I think it's really illuminating. Yeah. Um, so I attended a liberal arts school that a lot of people, where a lot of people smoke marijuana. And um, I think that's every college. <laughs> right. A lot, exactly. Well, exactly. But it was especially a hippie school. You know what I mean? So you wouldn't expect there to be any kind of um, crackdown um Right, and certain schools are, are known to be you know harsher, but this is a school you know pretty light, light on it. But either way, um, I was attending a, um, a class, and 
um, essentially laptops were stolen out of that classroom. And I was accused of, of doing that um, as one of the few students of color in the class. Um, and while just hanging out with my friends in our dorm smoking, as most college students do, um, you know, we, um, our resident advisor, two, door down, two, two doors down, and he um, was surprised the incident happened also. But either way, yeah, they came knocking at my door and were like, you know, hey, you know, did you guys, did you sell laptops? And it was, for me, it was a crazy experience because I'd always, I, you know, I went to college to, as someone who, you know, was um, a, a star student who was going on a scholarship. And so I'd never been, I never really had to like interact with, with police in that way. Um, but they, they were quick to, to remind me that, you know, I was a suspect and that I was from Roxbury which is the neighborhood that, you know, they were like, oh yeah, you know, and they called me homeboy. Um, and it was really intense. They, and they had my, myself and my, and my friends who were, who were with me at the time all show us like our receipts for our laptops to prove we didn't, um, they weren't stolen. So, and we were all on scholarships. So we all had receipts because they were recently bought, but either way, um, it was a really, yeah, eye opening experience for me. Um, and, and just, you know, having the police come to my dorm and that whole experience of, you know, you kind of, people on campus then come and see, see you a certain way. So and, and they came, more, and they came, yeah. they came, they came because of the, the, of the laptop issue, which it sounds like they went to you because you were one of the only students of color there about that, but they found some sort of cannabis while they were there inquiring about the laptop. And that's what got you in trouble. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it was a small amount and they, you know, they were like, we're going to, you know, search the room right now. If you don't, you know, just give us, you know, give us the weed that you have and I and you know I was like I don't have anything but you know there you go and it was it was a it, it was a um yeah it was a scary situation to be in as a fresh a freshman on campus like my my first gotcha. month there so Sean what about you um uh how did you you know how did you get here what qualifies you as social equity and what got you interested in deciding to get involved in the cannabis industry well, uh, I've been <laughs> I've been using cannabis. Uh, I've been smoking weed since forever. Um, probably since I was about twelve or thirteen years old. Um, you know, it wasn't until kind of recently that I've put two and two together. Uh, you know, why why I initially used it or why I fell in love with it at such a young age. Um, you know, it, it took a it took a late in life diagnosis for ADHD to realize that it helped quiet my brain a little bit as a young kid and kind of let me focus. Um, and it really was love at first sight. Um, <laughs> it made me, it made me see things that I otherwise wouldn't have seen. Um, you know, uh, it, but, but having grown up in the eighties with the stigma of the war on drugs, having dare programs come to your school, um, you know, being, being afraid of the police on a regular basis. Um, that stigma pulled at me heavily and I, I tried consistently to get away from it. You know, going into the military, uh, going into the fire department and re refraining from using it, um, at different periods of my life. But inevitably it, it always pulled me back, um, because it made me feel nice. And, uh, sure. that, that's, you know, that, that's that's the, the gist of how I came to love marijuana. Um, 
you know, I think it was when I was a firefighter in Boston, I realized, you know, these guys aren't the superheroes that people make them out to be. Uh, it's a little naive to think that just normal guys can put on a uniform and transition into someone different. You know, they're, they're just regular guys. And I saw a lot of I saw a lot of drug abuse um, with with harder substances, alcohol, opiates, so on. Um that I wanted to stay away from. So once I once I finished my first year of probation uh, on the fire department, um, you know, I, I had union protection at that point. And I went right back to <laughs> smoking weed because that's what made me made me feel good. Um you know, but um I I had this weird stigma attached to 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 it still right from from my youth and going to buy weed off of somebody even though people in the uh, the legacy markets were friends of mine uh i'd get questioned about oh don't you have drug tests how can you still be smoking weed if you're a firefighter and i wanted to get away from that and i started growing my own after a trip uh, it was, it was, it was actually Rembrandt's 400th birthday. And I went to Amsterdam with my, my new wife, uh, and I brought some seeds back and I said, I'm going to grow weed in my house and I'm going to provide for myself so that I don't have to answer these questions anymore. You know, I'm an adult, I have a career and I'm just going to do this. Uh, I sucked at first, but it ended up becoming something I really love to do. It's, it was, uh, very much a problem solving hobby. Um, you know, you're not good at it. So how can you get better? And I jumped in feet first and, and ended up becoming pretty good at it. Um, you know, fast forward a little bit, I ended up getting caught by the, um, DEA back in 2009 May of 2009, and uh, ended up doing some prison time for the manufacturing of marijuana plants, which is how they classify cultivation. So lost my job, uh, lost my career, nearly lost my house, nearly lost a marriage, nearly lost, well, I lost everything really at that point. And it's been a, been a rebuilding uh, for the past dozen, dozen or so years. And um you know, getting into the legal market was more of a a chip on my shoulder than a, a move to, you know, do something productive. Or it was really like, a, hey, I see a lot of police officers quitting their their profession, retiring to move into this new, quote unquote, new industry uh, to get rich. And, and you saw, and you saw one particular police officer that motivated you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, the the police officer who very, gave me my very first arrest for marijuana when I was a teenager, uh, was gloating down in headquarters to other police officers that I knew uh, that he was going that he had just signed a contract for Boston's first medical dispensary to be their chief of security. It, it never panned out, but the fact that he was gloating and telling everybody what his contract was for, 
it was it was a seven figure contract um that i mean it just really put a hair across my ass um <laughs> I, was, I was i was i was livid i was be, i was beyond livid um and i remember that day vividly uh, I, you know i talked to my wife i said what what would you do if you wanted to get into an industry that was brand new. She, she's, she's kind of in a niche industry herself. And she said, you know, start networking today, go to any, any, uh, conference that you can think of any little meetings that they may have, uh, nonprofits, find them, seek them out and, and do that. Um, which is funny because she, she connected me with a friend of hers, a colleague who helped legalize Rhode Island's medical, uh, program. And that colleague put me in touch with someone who introduced me to you and Shaleen title and Matt Allen, who was then the MPAA director. Um, and that kind of, that kind of got the ball rolling. And, and led us to where we are today. So, so you guys came from there. I mean, you guys went and, and basically became advocates yourselves, well-known advocates in Massachusetts, uh, as you mentioned, Sean. I think that was incredibly sage advice uh, from uh, from Jill, from your wife there, uh, telling you to go out and network. It is how we wound up meeting through a, a mutual a, you know, mutual friend and. Um, we lived in the same neighborhood in Boston at the time. Uh, for those who know me, I'm, I'm in Chicago now, but I uh, got to know each other there. Um, but and you became known, both of you really became known in the uh, sort of the cannabis advocacy community throughout Massachusetts and wound up uh, wound up helping other folks through the process of qualifying as social equity and economic empowerment applicants. Is that correct? And, and, and talk a little bit about that advocacy work that you did um, and still do, frankly, um, right, to help advance the, 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 the this, this social equity. Uh, I, I interchange the word social equity, economic empowerment. Uh, economic empowerment is really Massachusetts specific. Um, uh, but what you guys do to help people through this process. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, <clears throat> so Equitable Opportunities Now is an organization that was founded to uh, essentially fight for cannabis equity here in Massachusetts and to safeguard um, what was written into the ballot question in terms of um, the requirement for um, essentially pathways for communities impacted by the war on drugs to have ownership in the industry. And uh, since its inception, we've been advocating for just that. And so Sean and I actually met when um, the basically two-week period for applying for economic empowerment licenses opened up and we um, we being eon put out a call as well as a number of other um, cannabis advocacy organizations and the ccc itself um, to do a workshop where we had laptops and essentially told people to bring you know one of the required like you know a list of things on the requirements to, to sign up and just sat down and helped people apply. And we, yeah, I helped a ton of people apply, uh, people that are, you know, that are now working to get their businesses open. Um, but a lot of those people didn't end up being able to get things off the ground because of lack of funding and ability to connect with people. Um, but that's part of what we've done. And we do like a lot of, since then, um, we do, we being Eon, um, and Sean's participated in, in this as well, um, supporting other people who are, 
trying to get open um, people impacted by the war on drugs, economic empowerment applicants, um, getting them support, TA assistance, um, support with uh, references to legal services, um, things of that nature, and as well as policy advocacy. Um, we'd like push the state to create the, um, the, the social equity fund, which um, you know, by the end of the year should be, you know, well-funded. Um, and then also at this, at different city levels. Um, so people should check out that website, um, massion.com, but Sean and I are, uh, you know, have always been about, and even in our planning for our business, um, ensuring that we hire locally, that we, um, you know, provide good wages and, um, that we work with businesses, you know, impacted by the war on drugs, um, you know, different growers and, um, people like that. So, yeah, it's, that's what we're all about, and that's how we met. So we we we've been true to it from the start. So all right, so let's fast forward now a little bit. You you apply, you find a property, um, you apply to the state, you deal with the city, you get licensed. First off, how easy was that process for you to get yourself get yourself licensed at the city and state level? It was the most difficult process I've ever been through, and I've gone to prison. It's a strong statement. Man, so, it's it's not made um, to be easily navigable. Now, but this now now this is interesting, right? Because Massachusetts has really been held up in in many ways as a state that has tried to make it easy to get licenses in the hands of social equity operators. Um, and, you know, to be fair, it wasn't really the state process that was incredibly difficult, right? That's correct. It's unfortunately in the state of Massachusetts, and, and I don't know that it pertains particularly to cannabis alone, uh, but there's a strong um, municipality factor where each municipality is is more or less deferred to, um, to 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 kind of come up with their own um, regulations and rules regarding certain things. Mm -hmm. And so, how did yeah. Boston handle? Because you're right. I mean, you need basically you need in Massachusetts for those who don't know, you need a host community agreement uh, issued by the city you want to locate in uh, in order to in order to complete your state application, right? So at the state level, it's not that difficult to get to go through their application process it's a lot of check the boxes right but one of those boxes is you have to have a host community agreement now you guys are as i say in the story kind of a kind of the poster children for what social equity should be you, you both are justice involved individuals you both um have been arrested sean you've actually served time for cannabis offenses i mean just the story itself uh, the story kind of tells itself right from armani being from from uh, uh, the Roxbury Dorchester area, which is one of the few like predominantly black neighborhoods left in Boston. Sean being from the, the, the Roslindale West Roxbury area. I know I took a little bit of uh, gr uh, grief on Twitter for saying that Roxbury is predominantly uh, uh, Irish Catholic. It was really, or, or the Roslindale is, is really West Roxbury, but you're like right on the border. Right. Um, right. And you guys are trying to open up in the high park neighborhood of Boston, which is literally the area in between these two neighborhoods, like where like Irish, Bo you know, traditionally sort of Irish Catholic Boston and black Boston meet, um, incredibly diverse community. Um, this should have been 
a walk in the park for you guys to get the host community agreement and be able to move forward with this. But that wasn't really the case, was it? Right? Tell, talk, talk a little bit about the hoops you all have to jump through. When, 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 and I apologize for the PTSD. I can see it in your faces right now. But uh, this is really <laughs> this is really in, instructive, I think, for the listeners. Like, Tell us a little bit about what you all had to go through just to be able to complete that state application. No, yeah, I, uh, I was going to go ahead, Armani. No, I was, no, was going to say the the biggest thing about it. I feel like that speaks to what Sean's saying is that the process changed so much from when it first began to to where it is now. Where you know, if I was trying to open now, it's a lot more clear and there's more you know a bit more support. Albeit it's tough to get funding still, um, but with the when it started. It was not like that, and, and and there was no, you know, it was it was really not rolled out well, especially at the city level at, in Boston. Um, and we had, you know, a mayor at the time that was not supportive of marijuana legalization, frankly. Um, so it, there was oh, no. Oh, he he really campaigned against it. That's right. Exactly, and so there was no commitment to equity and inclusion at that level. And so, with this HGA being required at the municipal level, it really did put. Um, the you know the cities in control and then municipal governments in control of towns uh, in deciding who who gets what and and as we know with most industries whoever gets first to market is the one the ones who win so having political con- um, connections and access and, and money um, and there was you know some high profile cases of different towns who where, where there were bribe where there was bribery and um, now you know to this day we're still working on ensuring the process for getting HCAs are is, is an equitable process. So it's definitely a long story, um, but yeah, just the if you zoom out, it's just yeah that that's one of the biggest things is just how much you know it's changed and, and yeah. So well, yeah, they changed uh, the process just, like um, they changed the process at least three times on you guys, right? I remember originally you had to go through the mayor's or you had to go through the city council, and if I recall correctly, you were you were you were on the city council agenda to get your HCA when the mayor's office announced that they're taking over the process, right? Twice. Uh, they, 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 they changed the process twice. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, it's just, just amazing, but, and I don't want to belabor that because really this article was about the, the challenges with raising capital. You did ultimately get through all of that. Um, and not only did you get through it, um, you had to beat some really large, well-funded, publicly traded companies to get there, uh, and were able to do so. You were, you know, you were able to, to to use your your local connections and who you are uh, locally, get the support of the towns, the communities. I mean, I was at a lot of those community meetings with you guys, and it was amazing to see the support um, that you all had from you know just regular members of the community who wanted you to be the ones representing them with your store. So you go through all of it, you get the HCA. Now you got to raise money, um, right? And that that that's really the sort of the meat of I think this conversation and this article. So let, let's sort of at the high level. How'd you start out there, and you know what was the initial reception when you went out and started trying to raise capital? So yeah, you know we were lucky to have. Uh, um, be part of an incubator program with a, you know, the mid-sized MSO. Um, and it was a time, this was right before COVID, where things were tightening up with the cannabis markets. And 
all of the existing operators were really tightening their purse strings. There was layoffs. Uh, there were just generally people who were watching their money a little bit better. And at that point, we, we, the the incubator program ended. So Armani and I, you know, we didn't want to give up. And we were lucky enough to have had control of the property through this MSO. Right. And you mentioned um, the art, we mentioned the article that they, they did hold on to the property for you. Right. So you were, you didn't have to give that right. up. Yeah. Right. They just weren't uh, able to then provide the fund. They weren't able to then provide the funding for you to get operational. Exactly. Exactly. So we, we were lucky in that respect. Very lucky. Um, when we went out to get um, funding, we, it was well received. We, we put together a, a good pitch deck. Um, I think our pro forma was a little, rudimentary at the beginning but you know that takes time to kind of work through it especially given it was our first time doing it sure. um but it was well received people bought into what we were trying to do everybody we talked to wanted to be part of what we were doing um you know i think at some points we should have pushed for for, for solidifying these agreements a little bit earlier than we did. Um, but, you know, we didn't, uh, co you know, COVID hit, we lost about a year and a half there. Um, and then with certain other uh, people who wanted to invest, it was, um, I don't know if it was a, we're looking at them as prey or, we don't think they're as smart as they think they are because this look at this kid went to prison. He doesn't know any better. And let's just do a little bait and switch. But that's essentially what had happened. And Armani and I, we know our worth. Uh, we remind each other uh, constantly. And and we ended up walking away from these predatory deals. So, I mean, you're, you're getting into yeah something that I wanted to, to hit on here, which is one of the only ways that cannabis businesses, uh, startup businesses in particular, can raise capital nowadays, right, is through you call angel investors, which is essentially individual investors, um, and there aren't that many of them. And you know, for individual investors who are willing to put capital into this, particularly an industry that is inherently risky, you're putting into a startup that doesn't have any demonstrated operating history, um, and it's still federally legal, they. You know whether they're thinking about it in a way that's predatory or not. Um, uh, there, you know, there's there's an inherent risk associated with getting involved in this. That's going to you know that that is that is going to necessitate or, or or at least have them want some kind of outsized return, right? A large a, lar a larger return than than you might get in a in a you know traditional investment. Um, is that what you guys experienced? Like, what was it like dealing with some of these individual investors who were saying, "Hey, I'm going to come in and I'm going to fund the whole thing"? I mean, Armani, what did you, you know, what, what what did you what did you think when you were talking with some of these folks? Were you, you know, did you feel like it was, did you feel like it was predatory? Did you feel like there were bait and it was it, that that some of these were bait and switches, or did it feel more like they were just kind of standing their ground on what they thought their investment was worth, and it was a you know take it or leave it type situation? Yeah, I think it was a combination of, well, there's, you know, we went through 12 or more different 
people that uh, were interested. So I wouldn't say that like each one was a particular way. We had, you know, I think the throughout all of them, there was definitely a, a desire to squeeze as much as they could out of us because of the of the risk. And I think, um, as Sean mentioned, you know, there, there, the economy for investment change to the market, you know, for, for investing change over the over the course of the years that we were looking for investment, um, where at the beginning there, there was really like a lot of excitement and overpromising. And then, you know, the feeling of like bait and switching, you know, once the, the you know, things may have changed for them or just, you know, just, yeah, and or uh, and, and the combination of us, as Sean mentioned, not maybe pushing as much as quickly to get things done. But then, you know, we did have people who did seem genuinely like interested in wanting to support us, and they just couldn't, you know, uh, from their own words, say they couldn't, you know, make it work without it being too predatory. So people were, I think, you know, were deciding not to um, invest because they didn't want to set us up for failure. So that didn't fit. But you know, so it was definitely right, definitely right, tough you- and definitely, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had groups that, um, and it'd be interesting to hear your 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 thoughts and your perspective on this after the fact. But I remember there were times where you know there were there were groups, I think both individuals and funds, and and to maybe hold off on the the funds piece of it for a minute because uh, I think that's worth it. It's a, sort of its own discussion. Who basically came back and and were like, look, we really do want to do this, but we have investors of our own that we're working with. We need to be able to get them a certain kind of return on their investment that they're expecting, right? Uh, which, again, when you look at this, you know, if, it, if an angel investor, an individual investor is going to just put their money with a traditional money manager, right? They're, they're, they're hoping to get a, you know, we'll call it 8 to 12% annual return on their money. If they're going to put it into something more risky, they've got to see a bigger return than that, right? Like that's, that's not an unreasonable stance for an investor to take. Um, and I think there were times where folks came back. Um, and I, I, again, be curious to hear your, your recollection your, your, and your, um, how you're thinking about this after the fact that basically came in and were like, hey, we love you guys. We'd love to be in business. We'd love to do this. We don't see a way that we can get the returns that we need without either saddling you with debt that's going to hurt you as a company uh, or take too much of your equity. Um, so I'd love to hear your, 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 you know, your, your recollections and your reflections on these. Yeah. Um, we, we did have groups that said that, that, you know, were, were upfront and honest. Um, I remember just, it's, it's, there was a period of time where it was one group after another, after another. And, and like, like all of them, everyone was interested um, we're in a you know limited market in Boston. Um, retail is is ostensibly better than cultivation or manufacturing, and uh, so everybody wanted it. But it just seemed to well, and we, in, in in the meantime, we also got better at we, uh, weeding things out quick, quicker. Um, did you seem to be different? excuses if you will um as to why they couldn't do it there were one or two that were up front and like okay we can't do this we don't want to take advantage of you um and that's what it what would have to happen if if we were to invest in your company um which kind of flies in the face of the equity certifications and licenses that you hold um you know but but 
for every one or two of those people that were honest, um, it just seemed like a lot of other people were just finding reasons to try to squeeze us. Yeah, yeah. And you went far down the road with some of these folks, um, right, to the point where you... Too far. Too far, yeah. Well, you, you really <laughs> thought that you had your partners and you guys were moving forward together. And uh, and in the end, the you know the terms just terms just didn't work. Did you ever find yourself thinking effectively, fuck it, let's just take this because I'm, I'm beaten down, I'm done, I just want to get open, we're going to accept these these horrible terms, even if it's going to be bad for us? Like, did you ever... Do you ever feel? Do you ever feel that 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 the pull to just say screw it, let's just do it, even though we know this is not a good deal? I think we should both answer this question, uh, and I'll <laughs> start. I'll start. Um, I thought that I thought that after we lost a deal, or rather, after we walked away from a deal be- because we didn't think it was fair. We had spent a significant amount of time with this group, um, and it was maybe a few months after we separated ways that I said, oh, man, we probably should have just taken it and and just kind of got something because something's better than nothing. Um, that that That's how I felt, but I, I'd say even more so beyond that thought was the thought of just closing up shop um, and just kind of tucking tail and licking wounds and walking away happened far more often. For me. Ronnie, what about you? Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I was going to ask you, this, I was going to ask you the same follow-up question, right? Did you ever just feel like saying, forget it and walk it away um, or just taking a bad deal? I don't know, Monty, what are your, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. Um, I'm I'm more of an optimist, so I I've always was um, yeah I was always hopeful that we would find someone, and we always you know the fact that we had the license the way that we did set us up for you know the situation where someone would eventually invest, and it was just a matter of pushing and and not giving up. Um, but there were times where it was where it was really rough, and like Sean said, it, you know, felt like quit like quitting was the smarter thing to do. Um, but we managed to stay around long enough and not accrue a lot of debt in the process of doing that, which is one of the hardest parts. Um, but I was always, you know, convinced we our, our location and just uh, what we're trying to do, our connections is is um, it's, it's something that's going to be successful. So I, I was never really worried about what would happen once we opened. It was just a matter of convincing someone that that um, you know to see that what I saw, what we saw. So, and Armani, I appreciate that. And having worked with you guys on this, I mean, I always appreciate your your, your optimism. Um, and it's not, Sean, it's not to say you're a, you're a pessimist, right? But um, I think the I think the the optimism, the realism, the balance there, I think makes you guys a, a, a terrific team. And it's and it's you know it's, you're finally starting to see this you know the, the payoff here. And I think you will when the store gets open. Um, but you know, let's talk about some you know some of the options that you all looked at through this journey. Um, you know, if you were any other business, and I, you know, I would say if anybody's listening to this that isn't familiar with cannabis, um, right, they're probably wondering, well, why don't you just go to a bank and get an SBA loan? Um, now, the reality is this is the Green Rush podcast, so everybody listening to this is probably familiar with cannabis. They probably know the answer to this, but um, but why didn't you just go to a bank and get a bank loan, right? Was that is that was that not an option for you? 
Yeah. Um, so <laughs> we tried. <laughs> no. Um, so yeah, it's not an option to get a loan that would cover the amount it takes to both, you know, buy a property, um, you know, renovate it and then pay for the operations and, and the build, you know, the build out and the operations. Um, so it was, yeah, we, we, we were able to go to banks and they were willing to help with the building side of things because that's something that's established, you know, real estate, but you know, um, getting a shop or just, you know, pay, you know, giving us a loan for, to pay for our first round of product and our, um, our staff is just something that banks aren't able to do currently due to the, um, the way that the banking works. Um, cause it's federally yeah. illegal. Right? Exactly. Cause it's federally illegal. Yeah. yeah so, banks generally don't loan. I mean, the fa- I actually think the fact that you were, the fact that you were able to, to get banks to even talk about, you know, funding the sort of the build out or the real estate side of things is quite unusual um, uh, in this industry. Um, but ultimately, you know, that 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 couldn't happen unless you had the rest of the funding done. And in fact, and that's and it's a, it's a good it's a good segue into another piece, which are the you know investment funds. And people may think, well, you know, aren't there aren't there investment funds out there that just focus on cannabis and cannabis operators? Um, did you talk with any of them? Uh, I mean, I know folks have read the article. They, they know that you, that you did, but um, how'd that go? What was your experience dealing with some of the cannabis investment funds out there? Uh, can, can I name them? Uh, well, one, I mean, one certainly quoted in there, so I think I think that's fine. Right, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed talking to them. Um, Poseidon in particular. They seem to have their heart in the right place, but again, they're beholden to their own investors in portfolios and and you know promising certain uh rates of return and i think out of all of them they wanted to do it the most uh you know but couldn't but just couldn't in the end um yeah that's you know there were a couple there was at least another another one uh down in I want to say the South, maybe like Tennessee or Kentucky. Uh, I, the name's escaping me, but uh, you know, there's. It, it was funny because I've never been through this before, um, and and now having been through it, I know. Okay, there's a guy who goes out and gets all the business, right? And he's the one who loves you and wants to be with you and promises you the world, and then he takes it back to the decision maker who crunches all the numbers and has to break the bad news to you, (laughs) you know, and that's kind of just how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have, you know, they look, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their own investors and they've got to be able to provide those investors with the rates of return. You're right. You did, you know, you did, you guys did have some folks who I think you're right. Poseidon, I think that was a great example. And I, I know the other fund you're talking about here and some others who I think, you know, were genuine and really did want to do this, but ultimately, the economics just don't work, right? This is, and I think this is why, this is why we need safe banking, right? This is why we need banking reform in Congress uh, because the economics for these types of funds, the economics for these individual investors just don't really work for particularly, you know, smaller startup 
mom and pop equity businesses, right, who don't have the operating history, who might be running one store like you guys, right, where you don't have the, you know, the, the economic, the economies of scale if you were building a large vertically integrated operation, which would also be a lot more expensive, uh, of course. Um, uh, and it gets, you know, it, it gets, it, it, there's, these are just challenges that are largely insurmountable, not because the the lenders or the investors don't want to, you know, don't want to make it work, but because the economics just don't allow it to work. Um, so, I mean, what kind of lessons did you guys learn from that? And would you have done anything differently if you had the opportunity to? Uh, yes, I personally, I'll let Armani tell his side, but <laughs> I, I would, if I had to do it all over again, insist on insist on putting up or shutting up early, mm. very early. Uh, you know, I understand there's a there's kind of a romance period, right? This is a new relationship. You're meeting people. You got to think of it like dating almost, right? Um, however, you don't want to get so far down the road before you start seeing the red flags. Let's let's kind of suss out what everyone's thinking very early on in the relationship. Um, and, and that way you don't waste time. That's what I would have done differently. What about you, Armani? Any, uh, any, any, yeah, any, no. any, any thoughts in hindsight here? In hindsight, um, other than being born rich, no kidding. Um, uh, no, uh, so I think, yeah, Sean hit it right on the head, man. Like being more forceful in the beginning to try to get towards more deals. I think we, we sat on our original, on like the first deal because we were just like, yeah, we did it. And then it, it, it and after, and it looked like it was actually going to happen. But, I, but again, like, you know, with this market, things change so quickly. It was like, it's like, you got to get things done as soon as possible <laughs> so i think yeah moving more quickly but I, other than that i think we we really did everything else right like we assembled a great team we talked to everybody and their mother we you know just really hit every door that that exist that we felt like we, we had um and it's part of why i think you know we're we're on the path towards success um but in hindsight i think we we might have been there sooner if we had um like with like what sean said if we just pushed uh yeah, push sooner. Uh, I, I want to add. I want to add to that, Chris. You know, um, one of the things we kind of didn't do at the beginning was go through friends and family, um, or colleagues or associates for funding, uh, strictly because we made the decision that you know, Christmas dinners, Thanksgiving dinners would be a lot easier if we didn't have to take people's money and answer questions every year. Right. That's a, that's a fair uh, thought. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, towards the end, in between a couple of our many deals that kind of blew up, uh, I went through my entire LinkedIn page, uh, phone, Rolodex, I, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, every every person that's listening to this uh, that I know had received a call from me at some point to at, at rather this point to, to, for funding. Um, we were on the cusp of having this fully funded through friends and family, um, even though it wasn't 
our initial intention to do so. Um, but that, I, I think I would have done that sooner as well. Interesting. Well, yeah. And look, I mean, like we talked about in the article, you know, angel investors and friends and family is where most of the money from cannabis and cannabis comes from. All right. Without lack of without access to banks and loans and, you know, traditional, you know, traditional sources of capital, that's kind of where you have to go. And that I think inherently disadvantages social equity licensees, but just any traditional mom and pop small business owner, right? Most people don't come from families with loads of money. And I, I think you, I, you know, look, if you come from a super wealthy family, right? If you're a Kennedy or whatever, um, right? Like it's not the biggest deal in the world to take somebody's money if it doesn't work. Yeah, you may have some uncomfortable dinners, but like they're going to be just fine. Fa family member takes out a, you know, a HELOC on their home and the business fails. It's devastating for a family, um, so it, it makes, it makes sense that that's a route that you were reluctant to go down. And I think, you know, I think anybody in your shoes who is thoughtful and, you know, cares about their, their, their family and those relationships would, would be, would has to be cautious in a situation like that. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, even with our family and friends money, it wasn't enough to get us over the finish line, you know, which is ultimately why we didn't, you know, go with our family and friends. Uh, as that's a, right. Uh, that's right. And, and you guys did, I mean, look, at one point you also had a group that, had actually committed real money, right? And was gonna buy the was gonna buy the property and fund all the build outs, but you needed to raise the rest of the money elsewhere. And this, I think this was the time period you're talking about here, right? Where just you know, through those friends and family weren't quite able to get there. Eventually, eventually you did kind of get there though, right? Um, and then what happened, right? And then we found our unicorn. <laughs> this is essentially what happened. You know, well, that's well before that, but 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 right before that, though, the market was so bad at this point for investment that you know even the 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 you know the investor who had the group that had been with us for so long and was ready just needed you know some extra funding. Um, yeah, they had to back out. So that, you know, we were it was really they lost, like, their, they uh, lost their own divine time. Yeah, it was divine timing that we were able to find our you know investor. I, I know a lot of folks probably feel similarly when they get their shops um, funded. It's like. No, that's that's, 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 exa that's exactly what I was getting at. Um, so, uh, you know, well, uh, let, let's go there a little bit. So, tell us. So, you, you did find your you did find your unicorn. Um, I know we don't want to go into detail right now about it. Uh, you're still, you know, sort of finalizing, you know, finalizing some 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 last minute details here, and you know, don't want to jinx anything. But this is this is about as 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 done as you as you're going to get here. So tell us a little bit about without give, naming names or giving anything away. Um, how did you find your unicorn? And are you happy with the type of I mean, it took five years, right? Uh, but are you happy with the type of funding that you, uh, you know, that you're ultimately winding up with here? Very much so. Very much so. Um, I think I'll let Armani tell you how we found them. But um, it's a group of great guys. They're all local, which is even better. Um, it's a mixture of general contractors and um, existing local operators in the cannabis space. So it's kind of really the best of both worlds. Uh, not only do we have funding for our own store, but we have people we can rely on that are experienced in this business as well as um, the the building portion, you know, because when you split when you split up a, a retail, you you need your 
you need your CapEx and then you need your OpEx. And when you can have both coming from the same sources um, and, and one of those sources are a general contractor or two, then you're going to you're going to shave a lot of costs off of everything because these people do this for a living. And, you know, we've already seen a reduction in our in our quotes for construction on the property, um, like 60, 70 percent. So, you know, this it's huge um, that it could because that's money that we have to pay back um, with interest and to save that kind of money um, is going to bode well for us in the future when we're not stuck under their thumbs. And then on the, on the other side, the operational side, we have operational capital, but beyond that, we have operational experience with a number of operators who have uh, both grows and retail spaces. And to be able to, you know, just give them a call and say, Hey, what are you thinking for the division of labor inside the store or, uh, you know, how do your shifts look like, uh, you know, rather than trying to have to wing it? Because in the past, one of, one of the pushbacks we received from investors was, well, you guys aren't, you guys have never operated anything. So you're, you're an even bigger risk. Mm-hmm. Well, now, now this, you know, negates that. It's huge. So, yeah, I mean, that is, I think you're absolutely right. That is, you know, that is really a unicorn. Um, But look, in the end, what's not quite so unicorn about it is where you found your funding from was from the industry. Um, right. I mean, I know the the, invest, the investors, like you said, are, are in the contracting world, but they came through your contacts in the industry and come with you know, basically these new alliances of folks who are already in the industry. Um, so, I, you know, I, that but I think that also demonstrates just how difficult this is. Right. Folks shouldn't have to go to somebody who's already in this and get funded by someone who otherwise might be a competitor. I mean, in this case, it's going to be a great, it sounds like a great collaboration, but it's one of the few places that's available and, and really challenging. So I, I, I do, I'm, we're going to, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because I want to end on a positive note and I'm, you know, personally could not be more happy for you guys where you are and, and excited about what's coming. I want to get a little bit into the future here, but um, before you do, um, you, as I mentioned, you all, have some pretty good contacts in this world, right? You did the networking early on. You know somebody like myself who's been in this a long time. You mentioned some big names in the space um, who you were able to go to for help and support. You've been advocates in the space and helped other equity operators get their licenses and 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 you know and and, and you know get licensed, get through the equity program. So you're not in that respect the typical social equity licensee, right? Somebody who's just sort of transitioning from the legacy market, got themselves a license. And this has taken you five years to get the funding that you need to get your store open. How is somebody who doesn't have these kind of connections supposed to do it? And what advice would you have for others that are coming behind you um, and getting, you know, and, and, and getting these, these these equity licenses and trying to get themselves up and running, trying to get funded? Yeah, I mean, I, a lot of the people that are economic empowerment, social equity people who succeed have um, done it through a number of different ways from just pulling together family and friends money and from um, partnering with 
you know, existing operators to get shops open. Um, they, you know, pe- yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways people have gotten involved. And I just encourage people just to, to, to figure it out. Actually, you know, essentially it's really hard um, uh, to do that. So I mean, yeah, I, I've seen, but I've seen people do it. Um, yeah, I've seen people do it, but it's, it's definitely, it's definitely not easy. And people just have to keep on pushing and keep on um, trying to, you know, to, you know, try to get a hold of a license, try to get into the um, position where you're investable and then um, partner as much as you can uh, and, and, and safeguard your, your equity and ownership. John, any advice for other equity licensees who may be going through some similar similar challenges and what they can do to what they can what they can do, what they shouldn't do, how to you know keep their heads up through these you know through these challenges? For me, uh, yeah, yeah, I, th- I I would suggest if this is something you want, you must put all your eggs in the basket. Because once you have an, uh, for me, I don't, I don't have an out. I'm a felon. Uh, I'm a convicted felon. The employment opportunities I have are very limited. Um, so this is something I've wanted since uh, before I graduated high school. Um, I can remember telling people that I wanted to sell marijuana for a living. Um, and people looked at me like I had three heads at the time because this was, you know, early 90s. And so I've, I've had this desire to do what we're about to do for, for 30 years. And I didn't have anything to fall back on. Um, I, I did it on purpose because I, I know myself. I know that if I've got an out and things got tough, which they did, they got very tough. Uh, I, I would have taken that out and made my life a little bit easier. But this is something that I've wanted to do forever and I needed to put all my eggs in the basket. Great advice. Um, so uh, in terms of, you know, solutions here, you, you mentioned, uh, Armando, you mentioned the, um, social equity fund, uh, that the state of Massachusetts is setting up. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, what does that entail? And how optimistic are you that that's going to actually provide a, a solution for you know other equity licensees in the state. Yeah, so the social equity fund was uh, is a fund that was created. Um, well, essentially, the state was mandated to create it to support people impacted by the war on drugs, but that was in 2016, um, and it's currently what, 2023, and we are just opening the fund. So I think you know it's important for folks to recognize that the um, you know the Funds that the you know the fund that exists today is coming out way, way too late in the game for it to make an impact in the way that um, it it should or that economic empowerment social equity applicants have um, needed it to be. But the fact that it's coming out is good. It's it's a good thing, right? Like that it's coming out. Um, how much money is going to be in it is is still TBD. Um, you know, so one you know I don't I don't think and this is just. And I'm an optimist, right? <laughs> I don't think there will be enough given out uh, to bring someone from you know A to Z in terms of opening their business. There, you know, folks are going to have you know are not going. It's not going to be like a bank, from what I understand, where you can go and get everything you need. Um, so it's not a solution to the the issue. Um, but, you know, there needs to be a way for folks to 
not have to rely on rich family and friends to get this thing open like a regular business. And that nice. just doesn't exist. And that's so what I'm hearing is it's, yeah. it's, it's good, but there's, there's, it's hard to imagine there's going to be enough money to fund everybody that needs it to get up and running in Massachusetts. Right. Or that enough will be giving out, we're giving out individually that that'll be enough to actually, you know, make a difference in a person's business um, plans. You know, maybe, yeah, I, I mean, only in hypotheticals can I imagine it in the hypotheticals that probably won't happen. So, it's, you know, um, and maybe, and I, I hope to be proven wrong. You know, I, I want to, you know, I'd love to learn that that's not the case. And, you know, each person's going to get two, two, you know, two to three million, but I don't. Think right. But states don't, I mean, states don't have those kind of budgets. Right. Like, I think your pessimism and you are as optimistic a person as I've ever met. Um, you know, I think you're, you know, I think you're, you're, no, no, your pessimism, but your skepticism here, I think is completely warranted. Um, right. uh, get under, under the circumstances. Um, and which leads me to my next point before we, and, and then I want to get into some, you know, some happy stuff before we wrap up, um, which is, you know, my thesis in all of this, in the article at least, is that the solution is Congress needs to act. Congress needs to pass safe banking, ideally safe banking with some strong equity provisions, um, uh, small, you know, small business provisions, equity provisions, right? But Congress needs to do something, right? Pass something. And I think safe banking as it currently stands is flawed, but it's uh, far and away better than what we have right now. Um, that will allow institutions to put capital into small businesses, into equity businesses, um, so that you can avoid basically everything that we just discussed, right? Predatory individual investors, friends and family who don't really have the money and are having to like take out second loans on their houses, uh, cannabis-focused investment funds that don't really have that much money or can't justify the investments because they won't provide the returns that their investors need um, to to make it work. And all of these different, like all of the things that 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 all the things that provide barriers to equity licensees in the industry, you guys have been through all of it. So. You have the experience. I think you are who lawmakers need to be listening to. Um, and so if any of them are listening, and we've had many of them on this very show, um, so maybe some of them are, they're out there. What do you have to say to members of Congress that might be on the fence about passing something like, like equity? And, I, and, I, and I'll take it even a little bit further, because there are a lot of folks in particular who are who have opposed this on the left, right? Democrats, folks who are traditionally more our allies on these issues, who have opposed something like banking or safe banking because they 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 claim that it's only going to help the you know the the white owned publicly traded companies and these wealthy white owned banks, and it's not really going to help equity operators. And that has been a real hurdle, particularly last year in getting this done. What do you say to to Democrats? who might be on the fence about this or anybody in Congress who might be about uh, uh, on the fence about this, given your perspective and your experience as an equity licensee trying to get funded to get yourself operational. Uh, prohibition has ended. We want, everyone wants money. Government is no different. Uh, in order to get this tax money, we need to bring the traditional market into the regulated market. And in order to do so, we need money to do it. Uh, the barriers to entry are capital driven and somewhat insurmountable without 
loans and, and money that we can apply for through a bank. Uh, you know, there's a significant portion of the population uh, that is still purchasing from the traditional market. And they're going to continue to do so because they're comfortable. They're comfortable with who they're going to. They've known them for a long time. But if we could get those operators uh, some funding and, and access to this market, I know a few that would gladly jump in. And, and with them comes their base, right? And, and comes more revenue and comes more taxes. Uh, and, and, and that's essentially what pro prohibition, ending prohibition was supposed to do was supposed to bring everybody into the regulated and tested and taxed market. Uh, and I, I think it's failed to do so. And it's going to continue to fail to do so without access to capital. Armani, what about you? What's your, what's your message to lawmakers who are, who are considering safe banking or other, other, other potential legislation around this? Yeah, I, th I think that time is now to make it happen. Um, there's a, you know, a need for banking across the industry and especially to help small businesses, um, people like Sean and I, um, and everything that Sean just mentioned about um, how this will benefit, right? The, 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 the different um, communities where legalization happens is, is true um, and where, or where rather there's shops open and, and gen generating revenue and taxes. So it's important um, for our economy. It's important for us to transition into, um, you know, this, this phase of, of embracing, um, you know, a plant that we that used to be legal, you know, it used to be something that, you know, <laughs> that we, you know, took advantage of. And so I think because of, um, of, of people who are short-sighted, we, you know, made it illegal. And so we need to, you know, get back to where we were before and we need to um, take advantage of this new opportunity um, so the safe banking is an easy way to do that. So that's, that's where my head's at. And that's why I think that Congress people should, um, that's where I think they should pass the safe banking. That's great. So, all right, well, let's, let's get to some, some good stuff here. You've, you've got your investment largely lined up here. Um, you're looking at swinging hammers, uh, and actually getting a store open, uh, right? This has been the goal, right? The goal, the goal here was never to raise money, right? The goal was to actually, open a cannabis store and uh, that's happening. So tell us before we run here, first off, um, tell us about your store, tell us about your brand, tell us about your concept. Um, what is, uh, what, it, what is firehouse? What makes, what makes firehouse firehouse? Uh, firehouse is a play on my previous life as a firefighter. Um, as well as the new youth terminology for really good weed, uh, fireweed. Um, so fireweed firehouse, um, that is going to be the brand. Uh, we're going to highlight people who are traditionally left out. So when you come to our store, you will not see displays of MSO marijuana and marijuana products. You're going to see displays of equity applicants, um, Black-owned businesses, brown-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, uh, veteran-owned businesses, uh, as well as a, a couple of LGBTQIA businesses that are all local, locally-owned Massachusetts brands. Um, some have expanded elsewhere, but they all started here. Now, that's who you're going to see in our store. That's who we're going to push. 
Um, we're going to offer marijuana the way I've, you know, we used to always sell it, right? You're going to be able to see it. You're going to be able to smell it and you're going to be able to pick out what you want. Um, obviously there will be, you know, and, that, and that's in the deli section. Uh, we call it a deli section, but it's really just a, a bar, if you will. There's obviously going to be the prepackaged um, products that will will carry uh, that you know most other dispensaries carry. But we're trying to bring a little bit of the traditional market into our store so that you feel a seamless transition um, from from someone showing up to your house to you going to a store that's open at convenient hours. Great. Armani, anything you want to talk about uh, Firehouse, what you guys are doing, what you're excited about? Yeah, yeah. Sean hit a lot of it right on the head. And what I'll add is when you come to Firehouse, the goal is for you to feel welcome, um, for there to be people who are experienced, who can get you you know, what you need. We're going to have fire products. We're going to have product for people who are just beginning. Um, we're located in a community, and you know, we're committed to making sure that we um, reflect that in the people that we hire and also – um, you know, we want to make sure that people are able to come into the store and get out quickly. We have designated parking. Um, everyone, if they haven't yet, should visit our website, sign up for our mailing list, shopfirehouse.com, and follow us on our socials, uh, firehouse underscore MA across all socials. Um, yeah, we, you know, we, we're going to have everything you need. Um, so if you're in Massachusetts, if you're near, if you're in Boston, if you're near Hyde Park, we definitely want you to come by and we're going to be dropping a lot of news about our opening um, and it's been a long time coming. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're just excited to be able to provide the experience that we, that we, that we're going to have for everyone. Um, uh, I, 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 say, I, I love, I love that you are really sticking to who you are and to your roots and that you're, you know, now that you're here and after all this, right, you still have the dedication to being a showcase for, you know, black, brown, female owned, um, you know, veteran owned brands, right. Under brands from underrepresented groups and underrepresented communities. Um, uh, I, I think it's, I think, I think it's terrific. And I think it's a differentiated experience. There aren't any stores out there. I'm fairly familiar with that market, um, right. That have differentiated products. And I think people are going to want to show up and, and support a, you know, support a store that, um, is featuring brands that number one, you just don't see everywhere else, but also that they know are local and owned by, uh, you know, owned by folks who come from disproportionately impacted communities. I think it's terrific. And I really hope it, um, I hope that it works, when are you guys opening up? When do you think um, when do you think folks could be able to first set foot in the uh, Firehouse uh, Hyde Park store? Well, you know how government works, Chris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is your next. This is your next challenge, right after the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, so we filed for a building permit today. Um, we should. We should be issued that construction permit within the next month uh, and start swinging hammers Labor Day, give or take a week. Um, we anticipate a three-month build-out. And at that point, that puts us into the beginning of December. So, you know, we, we we're, we're part of some trade organizations here in Massachusetts. And from what I can gather the state can take anywhere from two months to six months to um, 
to to investigate or rather check your store and give you your final license and uh, or or your commence operations and uh, we just don't know you know come December how fast or slow the state will act but we anticipate anywhere from December to 420 I was going to say at least you're going to you're going to be open by 420 of next year. That's right, at least. All right, so I will be there. Well, I'll be there for the grand opening and uh hopefully we'll all be celebrating 420 together and hopefully if we have any listeners uh to the show here uh who live in New England or in the Massachusetts area, um uh check out the website, get on the mailing list and hopefully we'll see you all at the grand opening. You guys are really an inspiration. Um, you have been an inspiration to me uh, over these past five years uh, through your determination, um, the way that you have stuck with this through unbelievably difficult challenges. Um, and I have no doubt that this is going to bear fruit in the end and be a really awesome store. It's something really cool for the community, as you set out to do you know, all these years ago. Um, so... Sean, Armani, any parting thoughts for us here before we uh, before we wrap up? I have one, and it's kind of a, a, a little love fest situation. <laughs> uh, we would not be here without you, Chris. There's absolutely no doubt in either of our minds. Um, I, you know, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that we, you, 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 you got caught a little flack on Twitter, and I know that you have caught flack in the past due to your association with MSOs. Um, whoever's listening to this, I, I want them to understand how instrumental you've been to helping us succeed. Uh, it means the world to us. We know where your heart lies and we're greatly appreciative. It's been, it's been, it really has been a pleasure guys. I, and that, that means that really does mean a lot. Um, and I can, cannot wait to be there with you all on opening day, hopefully in December, but if it takes January, February, March, whatever it is, I'm going to be there and we're going to, uh, we are, we are going to have a hell of a party. Excellent. Well, Sean Armani, yeah, thank you no, guys. Seriously, oh, sorry. I'm excited. No, no, I was just like, I'm excited for you to be there. And, and, and I second everything that Sean says, man, you, you, you've been great. And, um, all the haters need to stop hating, and um, yeah, it, you know you're, you're a great guy, and you know we, I, we're we're blessed to also have good partnership. You know, Sean and I have been going at it, and I appreciate Sean, and I know he appreciates me. So, um, appreciate you, plat you know, putting us on this platform and allowing us to share our story. And I hope the folks listening out there, whether they're you know you know people trying to get open or Congress people, that they're taking this conversation seriously. I, I hope so too. And that, that was the goal of this, the goal of this article, this conversation is hopefully, right. It's, it's not just to, to highlight you guys, although that that's awesome. Um, but really to help advance this issue, hopefully advance some stuff in DC and hopefully provide a little bit of a, a, a ray of hope, uh, for others who may be experiencing the same challenges that you all have gone through over the years, um, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so with that, we're going to wrap this up, Sean, Bernie, Armani White, thank you guys so much for being here um, and wish you the best of luck and success uh, with Firehouse as you move forward to from, you know, taking this from concept to fundraising to actually opening up a store here. So thanks so much, guys. Thank you. No, thank you, man. Thanks, Talk soon. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Uh, huge thanks to Armani White and Sean Birdie, owners of Firehouse. You can find out more uh, about Firehouse and get a link to their website in our show notes. As always, 
Thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at at the Green Rush underscore podcast or drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback and guest ideas. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush in your favorite podcatcher. I didn't know podcatcher was a word. <laughs> Sorry, that's why I stumbled on that one. <laughs> there we go. All right. Awesome. Cannabis! Cannabis!